on, guys. It's me, Stephen Bagel, a.k.a. the NB Eagle, your mom's favorite podcast. With me today is definitely the most Twitter famous person we've ever had on the podcast. With us today is Jackson Frank. Jackson, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. So I guess let's just get into things. You are currently a writer for Liberty Ballers, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the places I do freelance NBA writing for. Okay. And this podcast, obviously, it's called the NBA Goal. I try to focus primarily on NBA in general, but given I am a Sixers season ticket holder and a big Sixers fan, those biases definitely, you know, come into the podcast a lot. So what we're going to be talking about today is some things the Sixers can do to improve as currently constructed, where they could improve around the edges in regards to the players on the roster. And then Jackson is also a pretty big um, college basketball guy. So we are going to be getting into some draft talk as well. Right on. Sounds good to me. It's Lillard. He got the shot off. Okay, so let's start with your Twitter. You have about 15,000 followers. How has that accrued over time? Was it just like one tweet that blew up, or is it just how did that come about? Um, I started tweeting about just tweeting and writing about the NBA on a consistent basis, um, I think in 20, 2017, late 2017, and, um, you know, when I really started to kind of, I don't know about take off, when I started to see followers, you know, come uh, more quickly was right around the 2018 draft. I started to do some in-depth work and did some film, some film breakdowns and, you know, game threads and saw people like that. Um, and so it's been kind of a steady rise since then. Um, you know, I've had some time where people, uh, well, maybe I'll get a, a retweet or a big shout out from somebody. And so, you know, maybe over a few weeks or a few days, I'll get it, you know, in inordinate amount of, you know, followers but uh, for the most part it's just been steady um you know i, I tweet a lot I, I do a lot of you know writing and so i also do a lot of video breakdowns on my on my uh page so i think it's just you know people you know for whatever reason finding value in what i post so um i don't think there's any really one reason that i've noticed it's just been um people you know for some reason tend to you know like the way i analyze the game and talk about it and i've been lucky to have people um you know give me shout outs or just find my work one way one way or another Definitely. And that's how um, I stumbled upon your page as well in the recent years was, um, you know, um, seeing your film breakdowns and they're pretty in-depth and pretty, you know, um, they're good. So it was um, it was a pretty big deal for me to get you to come on to the podcast. Um, Another thing I noticed, I was looking at your followers, Daryl Morey follows you. (laughs) So. Did that happen after he took the Sixers job? So is that a recent thing? Or was he always following your work even when he was with the Rockets? No, that was a recent one. I think I 
maybe tweeted a stat or tweeted a, a Sixers video and he he followed me. I don't recall exactly I don't recall exactly what the the source of it was, but just something Sixers related that complimented the team he's he's running and uh, I think that maybe happened a month a month or two ago. But but yeah, I remember when it was it first happened. It was kind of I don't know about shocking, but it was it was funny to see and uh, it's cool. And he he'll just to like tweets every now and then and. It's very much one of the more uh, online uh, front office members in the NBA, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's very um, out there with social media. Um, you're close friends with Sixers Adam, is that correct? Yeah, we worked together at Liberty Ballers for a couple of years, and we've grown okay. um, pretty close over the last few years, for sure. Okay, yeah. Um, for those of listeners who don't know, Sixers Adam is um, a big Sixers guy. He's a writer currently for the Great Ricky Sanchez podcast, who I'm somehow in the cold of if that's what you want to call it but um let's get into some Sixers talk so the team obviously is currently in first place in the east um what do we think they can okay let me put it this way do you think as constructed this team could win a championship as constructed I don't I think they're just a tier below um the Lakers and the Clippers so I think the Lakers are the best team right now and I think the the Clippers are second best, but I do, but I do think they can come out of the East. I, I don't think I would pick them. I think someone asked me yesterday, I kind of had them maybe my one B tier. I would still put the Nets and Bucks ahead of them, but it would be one of those things where I would maybe be a little surprised if they won the East, but I wouldn't be shocked. And I think there's certainly a path to them doing so. Um, so it's a, it's a short answer. I think they can definitely make the finals, but I would, uh, I think it'd be very tough for them to, to win um, once they get there, whether they face one of the LA teams. Maybe they face somebody else, but I would be surprised if, if it wasn't one of the LA teams you know, coming from the West. Yeah, I can get behind that as well. The Nets, I was a lot more afraid of them until last night's game because obviously Katie and Kyrie didn't play, but they just they don't have any sort of depth on that team. They don't have a center. DeAndre Jordan at this point is a shell of his old self. And then they have Norville Pella as the backup. I know they played Jeff Green as the backup five there, but like when you have Landry Shamit and TLC and all these other sixes cast off as your playoff rotation, I just I know the talent that the big three in Brooklyn possesses, but I think Milwaukee is just such a bigger threat to the Sixers right now. I think that's fair. I I think it's it's for me it's it's tough to necessarily say right now just because. Um, the, the Nets one, I don't think they played hard at all in the fourth quarter. And two, um, once they put ben, once the Sixers put Ben Simmons on James Harden, it kind of um, and they had Danny Green out there, Matisse Thybul, and they got some stops and got out and ran. Um, it really neutralized what the uh, Nets wanted to do. But you know, when Katie and Kyrie are healthy, um, you know they're going to have to be other guys you defend and account for. So um, yeah, I think the I think being more wary of the the Bucks and the Nets is certainly reasonable. I don't really have a definitive stance on that at the moment between the two. Um, both, you know, both teams are kind of in weird spots where they're uh, re- kind of experimenting with things. The, net, the Bucks have reworked their offense and uh, even changed some of their defensive schemes, so they're kind of trying to find their stride there. Um, but yeah, I think there's, I think I totally get the idea that you know a team that can play both ways and have a very good offense um, is maybe more threatening to a team that has a, an incredible offense and a very porous defense in Brooklyn. So um, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from there, and I think it's worth mentioning like the Bucks, you know, have a long, long been kind of I guess the last couple of years have been great because of their defense, but this year they have the top-ranked offense. Um, Drew Hawley's added a ton to their attack in terms of you know kind of the versatility they can offer. So uh, yeah, I think it's 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 certainly a, that's certainly a team out there that looks 
has a lot of the same has a lot of the same core pieces from last year, but has kind of really reworked uh, its identity and its play style on both ends. Yeah, and the Nets, as those that staff floating out there that I've seen multiple times on Twitter, is that since the James Harden trade, they have the best offensive rating in NBA history, but the worst defensive rating in NBA history. So I think the Nets need to go after a guy like PJ Tucker in order to you know, help solidify that defense. He could play the backup five for them. He could probably play the starting five for them at this point. Yeah, um, yeah, that's totally fair for sure. I think he would be a great target. Okay, so in regard to you saying we're probably in that like one B tier rather than the one A, mm-hmm. what do you think? I guess let's start with potential trades or buyout candidates. What do you think we can do in order to get to that level? Yeah, so um, when you sent me the outline, I wrote down just some guys that I think might be, um, you know, available, whether it's the buyout or buyout market or a trade. Um, the guys that came to mind for me, um, and I don't necessarily know if all these guys, or I would say definitely, definitely not all guys change how good the Sixers can be in terms of ceiling, but I think there might be guys that could help to an extent and, um, you know, just in, in different ways. Um, so the guys that came to mind for me would be Zach Levine. Um, and Bradley Beal, the two big ones. I don't think either of them get traded during the season, though. Um, but other than that, kind of maybe role players that come to mind, P.J. Tucker, Nemanja Bialica, J.J. Redick, Evan Fournier, Terrence Ross, Wayne Ellington, Dwan Wright, and George Hill are kind of the – I think all those guys could really bolster the Sixers rotation, and a couple of them could really help um, beyond the first round, which is what I think is the most important way to view a potential uh, trade target with the Sixers because I think – you know, they're good enough to win a series, you know, as currently constructed, but it's about kind of if these guys can contribute in the second round beyond against the, you know, the top four teams in the East. Yeah, those names, I had most of them. I put J.J. Redick and Nicolo Melli, I think, together as a package that would be because I think in any J.J. Redick trade, assuming we trade for him and rather than wait for him to get bought out and then sign him, I feel like Mike Scott would have to be in the trade. So that's why I'm putting Nicolo Melli in the trade because – we would need that backup for the stretch for that element that the team doesn't really have right now with Mike Scott out. So I have J.J. Redick and Nico Lomelli. Then I have George Hill as well. I have Nemanja Bielitsa. And then I have um, Wayne Ellington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, I think all those definitely make sense. And I, I, the ones that I would I think would prioritize the most um, personally would be uh, Bielitsa and George Hill. Um, I think – George Hill would help a ton in the guard rotation. Um, the fact that he can space the floor and defend would be huge. Um, I don't, I, I don't tr- really trust Shake and uh, and Furkan as kind of your your defensive backcourt off the bench right now. I know Shake's improved and even Furkan's gotten better, um, but I think George Hill is just much better and I trust him more there. And then Bailey's is a guy who was a very good shooter. He's had a down year. He's been kind of out of the, the Kings rotation as of late, but um, good shooter can can shoot off movement a little bit, can attack closeouts to an extent. Um, decent passer on the move as well. So uh, I think he would certainly add a useful element as a, as a four-man there. Um, but yeah, I think there were, I think kind of all the guys I listed and the guys you listed, the, the most important thing a lot of them would do would be able to um, buy a few more minutes with the bench um, and maybe lessen the load for guys like Tobias or, or Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid um, in one way or another. So um, that would be kind of, I think for a lot of these guys would be the, the priority there. I was just you know, maybe kind of letting these guys, letting the starters and the stars, be uh, a little more rested for the playoffs. Because um, at the end of the day, you're gonna you're gonna need your, your stars to perform. Uh, that's really gonna it's gonna be the, the most important thing there. Um, and I think a lot of the guys that I mentioned and you mentioned could could really um, you know just save a few minutes a night, and that would add up over the course of a season. 
Oh, definitely. So are you an advocate for J.J. Reddick coming back? or Because I know you mentioned him on your list, but I know there's a lot of people that are saying, yeah, he can't defend, and that's what we need. He's not shooting the way he used to. But, I mean, he held his own in 2019 in the Brooklyn and the Toronto series on defense. And when Joel Embiid went on the J.J. Reddick podcast, he raved about how much he loved playing with J.J. And he said he was his favorite teammate ever. He said they had the dribble handoff down. So I think just, just to make Embiid happy, I think that aspect alone would be, would be valuable enough to bring J.J. Reddick back, whether that's in the buyout market or trade. I think I would be more in favor, a lot more in favor as a buyout. Um, I, I think the Sixers have kind of a, a scarce amount of, you know, trade resources and, and avenues. And so I don't view Reddick as someone who can, can really help beyond the first round. His movement and defense has really regressed the last couple of years since he went to New Orleans. Um, but you're, you're right. He was, he was fine in that, in that, those playoff series, but um, I just think he's, he's really lost a couple steps since, since in, even since then. Um, and so I, I would definitely try and find, bigger upgrades through through trades, but I think there's certainly something to be said to bringing him back, you know, maybe as a buyout guy who can who can give you 15 minutes a night and, as I mentioned, kind of steal some minutes for guys. Um, but I think they should be um, aiming higher, you know, given maybe the limited amount of trade avenues they have. I, I don't think Reddick would really elevate this team's ceiling, you know, in the postseason, but I think there's, there's certainly some validity to, to wanting him back in the buyout market, and that's kind of what I would advocate for. Okay, so what do you think – Trades and buyout market aside, what do you think the Sixers, the current players, can really do to get us to that next level? So I think I think the big one um, is is Ben Simmons has to remain a a key centerpiece offensively in in the playoffs. Um, the last two second rounds he's played in, uh, you've seen his offensive role really diminish. Obviously, he was he was a lot better in that Brooklyn series, or excuse me, in that Toronto series. He was in the Boston series as a rookie, but. Um, you know, really played off the ball a lot more. I think only averaged seven or eight shots per game. Um, and so I think he's got to be able to be a guy who can continue to average 15 to 17 points a game, um, whether that's whether those points are coming in the half court or he's turning teams over like he was yesterday and getting out and transitioning against the Nets, um, or maybe kind of even the same way we saw him play against the Lakers a few weeks back. Um, he's just got to find a way to make sure his, his offensive role isn't so diminished. Um, and I, I think uh, – I think a team like maybe the Nets does maybe allow him to um, continue to be really aggressive and whatnot because they're just lacking so much size. Even when Katie and Kyrie are there, um, that doesn't all of a sudden mitigate the size advantage that the Sixers and, and Ben Simmons have over them. So I think that that is the biggest key to me. Um, obviously, Joel Embiid's going to have to continue being a really, really good scorer. He's not going to have to be this good. He's not going to have to be 30 points a game on 67% true shooting. Um, but he's going to have to be better than he was in the Raptors series because they don't have someone to take the load off like they did with Jimmy Butler um, or even J.J. Redick at the moment. So um, I think that's kind of the biggest thing there um, is making sure Embiid continues to be a, a star scorer and, and Simmons doesn't see his offensive role diminish in the playoffs where he's playing more off the ball and um, deferring to maybe a, a flawed ball handler because I don't think the Sixers have um, – you know they, they don't have a Jimmy Butler guy who you can say, okay, we're going we're gonna to diminish Ben Simmons' you know, role – when he has the ball in his hands and give it to Jimmy, you know, that if his role was diminished now, it would be going to Seth Curry or Tobias or, um, or shake. And I just don't think those guys are really good enough to warrant, um, you know, that being a good, a good signal for the Sixers' success in the playoffs. So how do you think I keep trying to envision a Sixers and Nets Eastern conference finals? 
how do you think those matchups would play out? I'm assuming Ben would probably, I don't know. I want to say he'd be on KD just because of his size. Um, I was, but I don't know. I think I was talking about this with someone yesterday, actually, and um, I, I hadn't really considered it, but their argument, which I think made a lot of sense, actually, was um, maybe it doesn't have to. We saw yesterday, but they would throw Tobias on KD um, just because KD's probably going to get his, but you know, Tobias is his best strength, honestly, is his post defense, and so if you can force KD a little farther out in some of those catches, make things tougher, throw him off of his rhythm a little bit, that would be huge. Um, and then maybe throw you know, Simmons on Kyrie because um, if you want to go Simmons on Harden, that leaves you with Danny Green on, on Kyrie. And Danny Green's been struggled so much guarding off ball players, which is what Kyrie does a little more of when, when, those, when that big three plays together that I think that would really hurt you. But um, so I think I kind of agree with that. But then, I, you know, I, that was before the game yesterday. Um, we saw the struggles the Sixers had when, when Danny Green had to navigate screens and, you know, stay with Harden on stuff. So um, I, I think, the biggest thing would just be to make sure you're really they're really particular with where they're putting Simmons. Um, I thought yesterday, like Doc talked post game about how he wanted to limit Ben Simmons' fouls and he kind of maybe use Ben Simmons on James Harden as a second half weapon. Um, but James Harden just destroyed the Sixers in the first half. That's the reason it was a game through two and a half quarters. I think you got to be really really particular and a little more quick to, to change assignments there when necessary. Um, but I, I would try Harden against Danny Green again one more time. See if you know Green can. Know, adjust. He's so smart. He's so good with his hands. So he can maybe adjust after watching some more film. Um, Tobias on Katie and Simmons on Kyrie. But uh, the overarching, you know, theme for me would be to be uh, really flexible and quick with your adjustments if necessary. Do you think something like starting Matisse over Seth Curry in the playoff series would be beneficial? Because that's something I thought of as a possibility. I, I understand it, but I but I think that would really hurt the offense a ton. Um, I know I agree. I know Seth's been struggling as of late, but um, I think a lot of that clearly is just attributed to him, as he's talked about not not being 100 percent every day. And I'm still battling back from some of the COVID stuff, um, which in itself is kind of scary. I hope he's you know okay long term and whatnot. But you know the hope would be that or the goal would be that you know Seth Curry is back to his normal ways, and obviously he's not going to be back to his, his pre-COVID numbers because those were unsustainable. But if he's back to a guy who shoots 45, 46% from three on decent volume and can handle the ball a little bit, um, I just think he would be way more important for them offensively. And I, I even thought he was he was fine defensively. Obviously, he's much worse than Matisse, but I thought before he missed two weeks, um, he was pretty solid defense. I never felt like when I was watching games, I was taking a bunch of notes on him being a liability there. Um, obviously, the playoffs and against a great, great offense like the Nets is a different story, but um, I just think Seth provides too much in offense um, to really, you know, advocate for Matisse given his offensive limitations and um, the space and issues he would have, you know, when, when Embiid posts up and you would have both uh, Matisse and Ben Simmons playing off the ball. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then in regard to the coaching staff, do you think there's anything that, you know, they could implement? The one thing I thought of to kind of unleash this team would maybe to play Ben Simmons as the backup five, because, I don't know if it's because Dwight Howard is getting on my nose with all the flagrants and the technicals, but <laughs> all the moving screens that he's having, I mean, so I don't know if I just want to see. I know Dave Yeager has been a big advocate recently in practice to practice with Ben playing the five a little bit. So I'm wondering if that's something that he's going to push for when it comes to playoff time, maybe to get Dwight, because backup center has always been the sixth biggest <laughs> issue. We saw the one playoff game, we had to start Greg freaking Monroe to, um, in the playoff game. So, 
Obviously, last year they signed Al Horford to try to alleviate those issues, and that didn't work. And now Dwight Howard, for the minimum, is serviceable, but backup center still seems to be just how poor the team is with Embiid on the court, and that speaks to how valuable Embiid is. Yeah, so I think but, so. What I wrote down for that part of you know the outline you, you provided was just be flexible in bench rotations. Um, I, the Sixers obviously have have at times been going five deep in the bench. I don't think they should run a 10-man rotation whatsoever in the playoffs. Um, I don't think that makes sense. I think their, their, their bench isn't good enough to, to do that. Um, and so, but more specifically, I think it would be, yeah, if Dwight struggles, be willing to go to bed at the five. Um, I'm not someone who, you know, I think people, too many people at times have said like, oh, if you just put ben, like play Ben Zim at center and, you know, put, put four shoes around, that's how you unleash him. I don't think that's something that is sustainable for 35 minutes a night or 38 to 40 minutes in the playoffs, you know, the same would likely play, but I think it would certainly probably have more success than, than Dwight against really good teams. Um, as you mentioned, Dwight, like generally speaking, is just too mistake prone. I think um, does some good things. As you mentioned, he, he is totally fine value in production for a veteran veteran minimum um, as a backup center. He's totally fine in that role, but um, against really good teams, I just think the, 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 the push in the back fouls, the legal screens, the, the, the stone hands where he seems to miss an and one or miss, miss catch a log or fumble a lob every game um, would just be really important and really kind of crucial mistakes um, in the 12. And, you know, let's, let's say 10 minutes and I do play. Let's say, you know, MMB can somehow play 38 minutes in the playoffs, which I think of what he played in the Toronto series, if I recall. So let's say they're playing Dwight 10 minutes a night. I think those would just stack up too much. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of value you can get with Simmons at the five, you know, for, for eight, seven to 10 minutes a night. Um, whatever it is, you know, it's the pushing the pace, getting four shoes around him, getting a play finish or something like that. So, yeah, I think that would be the big thing is um, you know, making sure you aren't rigid in your bench approach, uh, your bench rotation, excuse me. Um, and if, if Dwight isn't working, be really quick and make sure um, you go to that bench in the fight. Because as you mentioned, they've, they've talked about it. They, Doc has talked about wanting to run it. He, he's Every time they run it, he usually is pretty displeased after the game, but says that he still kind of likes conceptually what it could offer. So, um, it definitely seems like something they, they want to make work. And I think it would be something that would really help in the playoffs. If you can get six or seven minutes a night out of Ben at the five, um, that would be kind of, I think the, the big thing. And then just being, um, flexible in your, your, your kind of your, your guard rotation. If you say kind of the, the four bench guards, you could get minutes would be Furkan, Shake, Maxi, and, and Matisse, maybe not Maxi at this point because he barely played yesterday, but. Um, I think you just like if one guy doesn't have it, you and you want to keep playing the bench for a couple more minutes, see see if someone else can get in there. Like you just got to be quick with your hooks because uh, you really can't let those guys cost you minutes or cost you a game with maybe a, a, a poor four minute stretch or whatever it may be. Okay, and then I was thinking the playoff rotation. I can't other than the starting five. The only one I think that's probably a guarantee in the playoff rotation right now is probably Shake. Yeah, I think I agree there. I, I, mean, I, w- I would tend to agree. They shake his star a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but has still been quite good on the year um, for them. And uh, you know, he holds on defensively, can can run a pick and roll, can shoot off the dribble. Um, those are all things this team needs. Um, but yeah, I think I would tend to agree. I know it's a new coaching staff, but you saw last year in the playoffs that how quickly Furkan kind of faded out of the rotation when he struggled defensively against the Celtics. So um, I just yeah, I just think. Um, I just struggled to see any other guy having really earned their playing time, whether it's because they present a tough fit next to Ben and Joel in the starting lineup, someone like Matisse, who's played well this year. Um, you know, obviously he struggled offensively, but he's been very, very good defensively, or just hasn't played as well as you need a guy like Mike Scott when he's been healthy, or 
a guy like Furkan, who was coming around a little bit before yesterday's game, but is still not shooting the ball very well. And, you know, for him to have any value, you need him to be shooting the ball well. So um, I just struggled to, to see, you know, anyone having really earned or stated their case as a legitimate playoff mainstay at this point. Yeah, and maybe those guys come in the form of, as we said, maybe uh, Nemanja Bialica, P.J. Tucker, uh, George Hill, even a J.J. Redick for 10 minutes in a playoff mm-hmm. game. But um, in regard to the offseason, we only have the Sixers have the $5.9 million taxpayer mid-level mm-hmm. exception. <laughs> so I feel like you're kind of forced to re-sign a guy like Danny Green because you're not going to be able to replace him unless you think Shake is ready to you know, take that starting guard spot. And then you're playing a small lineup probably because you have Danny or not Danny, Seth Curry and Shake both starting together. Yeah, I so I, I would definitely prioritize bringing Danny Green back. I know he's had some issues with times this year, but I, but I do think a key thing he brings is understanding how to play off of Joel in the post. Um, I think that he, he really kind of instills on the rest of the team, just knowing how to play angles, how to relocate, things like that are huge. And then I think, you know, just, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to overvalue intangibles, but I think Danny just brings a certain level of kind of confidence and understanding to this team as well. Um, you know, he's been on a bunch of really good teams, just kind of brings an attitude and an understanding of how to win. And so when you pair that with his off-ball smarts on both ends um, and it is his floor space, and it's just something you would have to bring back for sure. Uh, I, I don't think any of the other free agents um, are really, you know, priorities. I don't think bringing Cork Moss back is necessary. I don't think bringing Mike Scott back or Dwight Howard is some, really, really important thing. But I think, you know, losing Danny Green and not maybe, you know, improve, you know, I, I don't, I just think there's a, there's not really anyone to replace him that would bring both kind of the intangibles and the on-court impact that he could bring. And so I would definitely be prioritizing retaining him if possible. For the taxpayer mid-level exception, that 5.9 mil, either to replace Danny Green or just fill out around the edges who do we think are some guys that we could bring in to contribute for the Chief? Yeah, so I wrote out or looked, looked at the free agent class um, and some guys that I think um, would be in that price range. Maybe the first one the first one might be out of that price range, um, but I think makes sense. Um, so the first guy would be Kelly Olenek. I, I think he makes a lot of sense. Um, I think he will probably go for more than the, the taxpayer mid-level, um, but I think he would be huge. You can run dribble handoffs with Ben. You can space the floor for Ben as a five. Um, is kind of he's a, he's a decent passer who's crafty with some of those you know, fake DHOs. Um, so I think he would be huge for them. And then the other guys I mentioned that I think would probably go for, you know, 5.9 mil or, or less or fewer, excuse me, um, would be Reggie Bullock. I know has had kind of a, a tough year, but I think his floor spacing would help. Um, Wes Matthews, Luke Cornett, Wayne Ellington, Langston Galloway. Um, those are all kind of guys I think would make some sense there. Um, now, obviously, if we let Mike Scott, if the Sixers let Mike Scott go, um, you'd have to find someone to replace, you know, at the backup four. And so obviously I didn't really name any fours. I named Alinus kind of a four slash five, whereas Cornette's, you know, more of a four and a half slash five. And everyone else is a, you know, a wing, you know, a, a two slash three, maybe more of a two. So um, you'd have to maybe find someone to replace him there because obviously power forward has been a bit of a, uh, a weak point, you know, in the rotation this year, mainly because they start two power. I mean, they start two guys. You can play at power forward, Tobias and Ben. Um, obviously Ben can really do any. You can play one through four really in terms of where he defends, but um, you start two power forward size guys in the, in the, in the lineup. So um, those would be some guys that came to mind for me, just really guys who can space the floor, um, a couple of stretch fives for to run some lines with Ben. I think Ben really works well with a stretch five. And then um, you know, just guys, I think, you know, would really add some shooting off the ball. 
Yeah, some guys that I had. I also had Veggie Bullock, Wes Matthews. I had um, Luke Cornett as well. Um, Nerlens Noel, there was speculation that he was going to come back this summer, and then we ended up resigning Dwight instead. So I could picture him being a backup five. I know it's probably ideal to have a stretch big next to Ben. So I have other guys like Bielitsa, who we just talked about in Trade Talks, and Frank Kaminsky. Mm -hmm. I know Frank Kaminsky has his flaws, but in regards to being a stretch five, he can, you know, he's adequate. Mm -hmm. Um, Another two guys, I let me say three guys that I really think would be beneficial. One of them would be Mo Harkless, Stanley Johnson, who's been a mainstay in the Raptors rotation for Nick Nurse. And then I was thinking Semi Ojale, just because we've for years haven't had, I, I guess Ben qualifies for this, but coming off the bench, a big body defender that can defend multiple positions and shoot a little bit. And Semi Ojale doesn't play much for Boston, so you haven't really seen that. But I mean, Boston keeps bringing him back and he's picking up his options for a reason. Yeah, so I, 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 thought, about, I thought about the first two. I didn't really consider Semi Ojale, but not because I, uh, you know, for any reason, but. I just think there are already too many. Like it's so tough with a guy like Ben Simmons playing tournaments to have guys who can't really space the floor. I know Stanley Johnson has been mm-hmm. better this year. Um, you know, he's shooting forty three percent from three on like thirty two attempts, something like that. But I just try to stay away from any guys who would really allow defenders to play way off of them um, the way they play off Matisse, because obviously Matisse is coming back most likely unless Matisse is moved in some trade for a big name. Um, then you would ha- you'd already have you know. You have Ben, Matisse, and then another another wing who you can really play off of. Um, I just think that would be a really, really tough ask. I get the value of maybe a, kind of a big-bodied wing in the playoffs, but um, I just I just was trying to stay away from any guys who I think wouldn't command you know respect from deep. Um, but I certainly get kind of the rationale behind uh, you know a, a bigger wing who can defend kind of those three slash fours that nobody really on the Sixers besides. Uh, Simmons can and Tobias can to an extent, but you know Tobias has his lateral foot speed issues, and so anyone with you know the, the the quickness to get by him really has you know no issues against him. Okay, so then let's look towards the NBA draft. Who do you think kind of we've been talking about the either the th- three to four type guy who can defend off the bench, or mostly guys who could stretch the floor to help Ben out. Who do we think in the NBA draft would we have our own first and we have the Knicks seconds? The Knicks second doesn't look like it's going to be so bad. Yeah, the Knicks. Or at least, yeah, not as bad as we initially thought. Yeah. So, so what do we think we're doing with those two picks? Who are some guys that we can target to help us get to that next level next mm-hmm. year? So a, a few guys, I, I just wrote down, I think maybe, I think I wrote three, three guys down, um, all kind of in maybe that 25 to 45 range, I think. Um, Joel Yai from Gonzaga, um, so he's, he playing a different role than he played last year, he played on the ball a lot more, but obviously Gonzaga is, is uber talented, and so they don't require him to do as much, but he's a smart cutter, he can face the floor, he's a smart defender, um, very good pick and roll passer, he's about 6'5", can kind of play either backcourt position, I think he would he would make some sense. I also think he would he would remind people a lot of Shake in the way he plays. Um, not super strong, but like really crafty and kind of his cadence and is, is skinny and long and um, just really kind of a smart player, but he's a really good off-ball player, which I think would be huge for the Sixers, a guy who can space the floor and knows where to move um, is awesome. You, you're seeing kind of the benefits of that with a guy like Danny Green. Um, he's someone that makes some sense. A guy who's maybe a little smaller, 
um, but might be able to limit how much you play Matisse because of Matisse's offensive issues would be a guy like Miles McBride, um, really awesome on-ball defender, pretty good off-ball defender too, um, can space the floor, um, has played a lot on the ball for West Virginia this year, but um, has had some issues. But I think if you could kind of play him as a floor-spacing role and a guy who can really defend the point of attack off the bench, that would be huge. Um, I don't think obviously, obviously he's much smaller than Matisse, but um, I think if you could find a guy who can kind of maybe guard those one slash twos, but also space the floor, um, that would be huge because the Sixers obviously rely on Matisse at times to defend, but his floor space is just such an issue. Um, and then the third guy that came to mind would be Matthew Hurt. Um, had kind of a weird, weird couple of years at Duke, but can shoot the heck out of the ball as a stretch four. Um, needs to really add some strength. He's kind of struggled with physicality at times at Duke, but um, I want to pull up his numbers here quickly over his two years at Duke, but um, he's about six eight, six nine. Um, kind of a funky release, but um, can really, really shoot the ball. So through through two seasons, he's at forty percent from deep um, at Duke. He's averaging five attempts per game this year, three and a half last year. So he's at one hundred and eighty total attempts. Um, you know, he's at seventy two percent from the line. Um, I just think he's a guy. I mean, I just I think you would have to really kind of hone his physical development, but um, just makes sense to kind of a stretch four there. Um, those are kind of three guys I targeted. Just just kind of going based off Tankathon, I, I haven't checked ESPN's mock traps recently, so maybe those guys are in different ranges. Um, but those are the guys that I think kind of all make sense. Um, again, maybe there are guys I'm missing that, you know, could be in that range, but just kind of three guys that came to mind and I think would fit what the Sixers need, you know, from maybe their, their backcourt and, you know, power forward depth. Okay, I actually had five guys written mm-hmm. down. One of them was also Matthew Hurd. I think that's – um. A great comparison because his ability to stretch the floor, and he was a projected borderline lottery pick going into his freshman mm-hmm. year. So, I mean, you could get some value getting him either in the late first or early seconds. Um, Franz Wagner, I feel like he's going to go before the late first. I he's projected in like the fifteen to twenty mm-hmm. range right now. For those of you who aren't familiar with him, he is um, Mo Wagner from the Washington Wizards, his younger brother. He, same thing I was just talking about with the potential Sani of like a semi ogile type guy. He can defend his position well. He's that he's probably more of a four than a three, but he can defend his position and he can shoot the ball. So I just think he's a better player than Matthew Hood, which most mock drafts seem to also show he's not in the Sixers draft range and Matthew Hood yeah, is. Yeah, I, I love Franz so Wagner. Th- I'm a huge fan of him. I considered him. I just think he'll go probably about – eight to 15 spots higher than the six little draft. But yeah, I mean, if he falls, he would be awesome. He's, he moves really well for his size. He's a really smart defender. Um, hasn't shot the ball well yet from deep, but his indicators are awesome. I think he's at like 82% from the free throw line through two years or through one plus years. Um, and just has a really good form, can pass the ball too for his size. So yeah, if he falls, by all means, the Sixers should be over, you know, trying to get him because he would, he would be a really awesome fit. He's, oh. he's a great, great prospect. That's oh. kind of that 10 to 20 range, I think. Of course. And then um, Ayu Dosunmu from Illinois. What do we think about him for the Sixers? I'm... I know he's he's not a lights-out shooter, so I wasn't sure how he felt about it. Yeah, I'm I'm lower but... on, on Ayu Dosunmu. Um, you know, I I haven't watched him in a little bit. It's been, I don't know how long, but I haven't seen maybe some of his most recent games. But uh, I do know he's shooting 41% from three this year. He's having a really good junior year, um, taking some step forward in, in some ways. But I just worry about him. I... I just think he is he's I think he would very much overlap with Maxi to an extent as guys who love to get downhill. Um obviously he's bigger than Maxi by you know a couple inches, two and a half inches or so, but um I just think his skill set would really overlap with him and I, I think he would be someone that teams would 
probably be willing to lay off of because he's so quick getting to the basket um, when he's spot up. I think teams would let him not let him shoot necessarily, but um, be more willing to play against the drive than they would against the shot. And so um, I'm just a little more wary of him. But but I think there's maybe I think maybe late second round, you know, if they trade into that range or something like that, I can see it. But um, I think he would really overlap with what Maxie wants to do and kind of the way that they uh, score and get to their spots offensively. Yeah, that makes sense. I just, I just see. I feel like he has that clutch gene, and I don't know. Sixers need a. I don't want to say I want to draft him to be the Sixers closer, because obviously, as a rookie on a team with championship aspirations, that's not realistic. But I don't know. I, I there's something about him. I just think he has like that it factor. So I don't know. I I might I'm higher on him than most, but um, the other two guys I put on here. Same thing in the mold of like a semi a big wing three to four type guy. Trendon Watford from LSU and Justin Champagny, who I've seen. He just dropped, I think, 33 and 14 on Duke. He's from Pitt. He just, he's starting to skyrocket up boards and now he's in around that late second roundish range. He reminds me a lot of a PJ Tucker. He's about 6'6, but he plays the four. He's a big, powerful rebounder. He can, he's shooting, I think, 42% from three. So just those two guys, I think, really fit the mold well of what yeah, we so need. I, so I know both Shan, the Champagne twins, I think, or brothers. I can't remember if they're twins or brothers, but um, the other one's at uh, – the, the other one is at uh, St. John's. Um, those are two guys that have really risen up the board recently. I have not gotten a chance yet to catch either one very much, so I don't have really strong feelings on them. Um, but I just, I pulled their stats. Julian Champagne is the one shooting 43% this year from three. Justin is shooting 37%. Um, I think Julian is, you know, from what I've seen, okay. stuff is a much better shooting bet than, than Justin. Um, just basically kind of the indicators and some of the mechanics, but, um, Trenton Watford is a guy who's definitely playing a lot better than last year. Last year, he came in and said, I think he was a McDonald's All-American at LSU. Um, I didn't like him at all last year. Um, I just, I just thought he, the way he kind of tried to score and his approach was flawed. I didn't like kind of his feel for the game and some of his decision making he's been better this year um but i still don't think he's a really high volume floor spacer um but i do kind of get i understand the appeal of him as a guy who can kind of attack downhill um and do some stuff but i I do think i just think the Sixers should really be prioritizing guys who can really really space the floor um i don't think he can do that um even though he's bigger i know you you can generally score in more ways off the ball if you're bigger but um i just think they need someone who you know brings smart and quick decision-making and space the floor. And I don't really think Watford checks either of those boxes, unfortunately. Okay. Then now while we're on the NBA draft, do you have any, I know it's early and this part, I wasn't, I wrote down a few guys that just, I know from either scouting last year or just the limited research I did for Listeners who know me, I am studying for the bar exam, and that is in two weeks. So um, I'm very limited on my college basketball knowledge right now. I haven't had time to sit down. Similar to how you just said, you haven't really looked at the champagne, champagne. I'm not even sure how it's pronounced, brothers. But um, so I did write down a few sleepers that I do like. So maybe between the two of us, we can um, paint a picture yeah, of a profile sure. for some of these guys. And then I'm... I'm sure you have some guys written down as well. My first guy, I've been trying to pronounce his name all day, from the Seton Hall Center, Sandro yeah, Mamou Castelli. I, I struggle to say it too, but I just shouldn't refer to him as, as Sandro. I, I don't want to you know, mispronounce it, but 
but yeah, um, he's interesting. He's, he's a really, really skilled big man, um, can space the floor. Um, you know, hasn't ever really been a, he was a good shooter last year. Um, very good shooter actually last year for Seton Hall, but hasn't you know, really ever put together consistently, been an awesome floor spacer, but um, can shoot off movement a little bit, is a, is a good passer for a big man, can attack closeouts, um, has his physical and defensive limitations, but um, I think whether he makes it as kind of a skilled bench big or a, a, an awesome European big, he's going to make a career playing, you know, professional basketball somewhere. Um, just super skilled, you know, for a big man. Um, but again, I think some, some of the physical limitations isn't a really great mover defensively and, and when he's in a, in a very quick jumper um, hurts him. But um, definitely someone that I, that I think is going gonna, is gonna to be able to, you know, fund, him, fund his whatever, fund his bills or whatever and his, his groceries for a long time playing playing basketball somewhere he reminds me of Pokusevsky on OKC and I say that with a grain of salt because obviously Pokusevsky is probably 120 pounds lighter than him but just the his ability to pass and dribble and handle the ball and stretch the floor as a big man I just see those similarities and I love Poku when he was in the draft last year so that's why I you're getting Sandro 30 picks after that Pokusevsky went. So, I don't know. As you said, I think he's going to have a long career. I think he is an NBA player. Mm-hmm. So, that's why I did have him on this list. The next guy I had is another um, European big man, Philip Petrusev. He was at Gonzaga last year, and then now he's playing overseas. And it looks like he's he knew Gonzaga was going to start going small. I know Gonzaga does have Drew Timmy there. But... Gonzaga typically has been going smaller when a team is off the floor, and now Petrusev is starting to shoot threes at a pretty decent clip. So he's another one. I don't know if he's an NBA player or he's going to be an overseas EuroLeague player for 12 to 15 years, but I'm very yeah, interested so, in the um, pick. Phil Petrusev was an interesting one. He, he played last year at Gonzaga, obviously. I think he was an All-American and won WCC Player of the Year, but didn't really shoot threes, which is something he had. He did a little bit of his freshman year and had done before coming to Gonzaga, but really kind of became this big time low post back to the basket guy. And I wasn't really a fan of him as a prospect. Um, I didn't think he had the strength or the, the vertical leaping to really thrive as a back to the basket guy. Rarely passed was, you know, very much kind of a pushover on the interior defensively. Um, but for whatever reason, just some of the Gonzaga fit wasn't good. I don't know exactly what it was, but, um, you know, I've clearly gotten back to shooting threes, facing up more. Um, I haven't seen a ton of him you know, since he, since he left to go overseas. I saw a decent amount of him before Gonzaga, but, um, seems to I would I would imagine just seems to kind of be getting back to that floor spacing role, that face up role where he can really shoot. Um, and so I think there's certainly a, a role for him in that regard. If if he can legitimately be a very good shooter for a big man, um, I think he could certainly have a role there. I don't know exactly where I'd take him, but um, I'm much more interested in him as a prospect now that he's back to shooting and facing up rather than being a back to the basket guy, given his his concerns in that regard. But but yeah, it's just, it's he's just a really kind of clear case of you know context and fit being really important for prospects um you know was able to you know build his national his, his profile as a, as a good player very good player Gonzaga but um generally going to showcase maybe his, what he um is so good at and maybe what makes him an appealing uh, NBA big man but but yeah I think there's certainly some you know I think there should certainly be a decent amount of intrigue in him as a, as a floor spacing big man um for sure What do we think about I, Kessler? I like Edwards Kessler a lot. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been a fan of him. I like I him a lot for at least like a year and a half now, or so, maybe two years. Um, I, I like the way he moves. I like his, his, I like his ability to attack closeouts. I like his defensive versatility. 
Um, I trust his jumper a lot. I think, you know, for a six eight six nine guy, it's good there. Um, it was almost 40% from three over, over three years um, on, on good volume. You know, he's at uh, 339 three-pointers now and 39, 39.5% over three years. Um, so, yeah, I, I like him a lot. He's, you know, he's really kind of come on this year for Pepperdine, um, you know, increases the scoring by about four points every, every season. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm huge on Kessler, I think. Um, I also think he should probably be a first round guy. Um, I just think, you know, guys who can attack closeouts and, and are versatile, versatile defensively and can shoot at that size are really, really useful. And, and he's kind of that, that sort of guy for sure. It's funny because Pepperdine, they have um, mm-hmm. Washington's old coach, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they have Kessler mm-hmm. Edwards and they have another guy, Colby Ross. Both guys who are NBA <laughs> prospects, but Pepperdine can win a game. So it's funny how at Washington, this coach was producing guys like Markel Fultz and Isaiah Stewart and Jada McDaniels. Or I, is, was it a different coach then? I'm not uh, sure. Stu- Stewart and McDaniels Stewart were under Mike Hopkins. Fultz, Jada McDaniels. Um, Fultz was... Uh... Was Lender. Yeah, Lerundra okay. Ramana. You're right. Yeah, okay. But he had guys like Marco Fultz who couldn't even make to March Madness, but he produces NBA guys. Now he's a Pepperdine, a significantly smaller school. And again, he's able to get these guys to the NBA. Uh, definitely Kessler Edwards, maybe Colby Ross. But Pepperdine is, I think, 500. And in the. Yeah, the WCC. They're in the, what? They're in Gonzaga's conference, I believe. Yeah, they're at WCC. Okay, and the one thing I noticed with my list of sleepers is I have two other guys, but none of my guys are freshmen. And given how much freshmen now have dominated draft boards, we see guys like Desmond Bain and Xavier Tillman come in, who guys who have played multiple years of college basketball, and immediately make a contribution. So that was kind of the theme I was um, looking for. So my other two guys, I have Will Richardson from Oregon, and yeah, Nemius Keita um, from Utah State. I, I like Wilkerson a decent bit. Um, I know he just came back from injury recently. Um, I mean, the first or second time this year, I can't recall exactly. But he, I, I was interested in last year, like kind of his his combination of pick and roll play, shooting, and, and passing. Um, you know, for a for a combo guard type guy, um, he's only played two games this year. But but yeah, for sure, guys should be on draft boards. Um, I don't have anything else that you kind of want to maybe state your case for him as a, as a big time prospect, or not big time, but you know, but just as a sleeper, excuse me. <sighs> As I said, I haven't, you know, with studying for the bar exam, I'm not watching much film. I'm watching current games when they're on TV as background noise, but I'm not, like, in-depth scouting them. Like, I typically do. That will happen closer to the draft once once I get this exam out of the way, which feels like it's going to be never. But um, I was watching a Peyton Pritchard, I believe, last year. He had, like, a 38-point mm-hmm. game against Arizona that went into overtime. And when I was scouting Peyton Pritchard last year, Will Richardson also dropped like 32 or something that game. He had an awesome game. It was a game against Arizona, went in overtime. I think Oregon won by one. And I just saw Pritchard and Richardson dominating. So ever since then, I was like, that Will Richardson dude is good. And then I looked on, um, on ESPN's big board to start the year, and I see at like eight, around 80th, 81st prospect was Will Richardson. So I go, oh yeah, that guy. I remember him from... So ever since that game, I just kind of had him in my head as like, okay, this dude, like, I just remember that one game saying this dude's going to be good. So ever since then, as I said, I haven't done the in-depth scouting, like I said, but I shoot, had to pass, put him on this list because of... Yeah, yeah, just a nice combo guard for sure. He can do a little bit of everything. It's from... 
And then my last guy was Nemius Kater from Utah State, who I've been on since his freshman year. Obviously, he's had injuries, and he's a little bit more off the draft radar than he was. But I don't know. I, he's just such a good defender and such a good rim protector. I can't picture yeah, so a team one, not taking um, a shot was on pretty, him. was a pretty kind of intriguing guy after his freshman year. Came back and kind of had a pretty injury maligned second year um, with Utah State. And uh, I've only watched a couple of the games this year, but uh, I, I am not really a Katie guy. I know he can pass pretty well for big man. And he, you're right, he does protect the rim well, but he really can't move or jump at all. I think in the NBA where, you know, spacing is better and you can get big men out in space more. Um, I really worry about him there. Uh, I just think that's going to be too much to, for him to overcome. Like I just, when I've watched him this year for Utah State, I know the numbers are good and um, I, I want to like him more, but I just worry a ton about the way he moves and the way he can't really jump. And he's not, he's not super strong for his side either. Like he just, I just feel like he doesn't quite have it. Um, he's really good in this, in this context, but um, you know, has never really shot the, the three ball. Um, it's a good passer though, but I think a lot of that comes on the ball. And so I just worry about how he defends, you know, anything outside of three feet from the hoop and then also scores offensively because of his athletic limitations, but um, has certainly been awesome this year. And um, I hope he's at least able to, to get a shot because I do think injuries have really kind of sapped some of his athleticism. That, that's really, really a bummer for a guy who I was fairly um, intrigued by after his freshman year. See, I started to fade off of Keita a little bit, but then I just saw Yudoku Azubuki be drafted as a first-round pick. And I understand the comp isn't perfect. Azubuki's a lot longer, and he's a lot stronger. But, I mean, he's a similar player where he can only really defend within five feet of the rim. He doesn't stress the floor at all. I mean, so I just, just saw he became a first-round pick, so I said maybe this hope for Keita yeah, is a second I, I get that for sure. That's why um... I looked at this. I, yeah, but I think, that, yeah, as you mentioned, the strength and the, the wingspan differential is, is pretty crucial there. Um, we still got to see how good Azubuke is. Um, you know, it could be one of those things where maybe he isn't worth the first-round pick. But, um, yeah, I think yeah, – but I think that's certainly uh, – you know, the philosophy totally checks out to me. I just think the strength and wingspan uh, or, or strength and length advantages that Azubuke has are, are pretty crucial there for his defense and play finishing. But uh, certainly here where you're coming from. Okay. Um, do you have anyone, any sleepers that you think are going to stand out in this draft? Or do you think we covered most of them just throughout talking about who the um, Sixers I think we covered a, a, an array like. of guys for sure that people should be looking out for, um, whether it's Sixers-based or just guys that you know might might end up being real values with the way they're drafted or if they're undrafted. Um, so I don't really think there's anyone I, I necessarily need to add, but because I, I just think we covered a lot of different guys who people should certainly keep an eye on for one reason or another. Okay. Are um, oh, you a I Cade mean, Cunningham guy? Or between the two of them, I, I'm a Cade guy. I, I think both are great. I just think Cade is better. Um, I think he's a more valuable archetype. Um, as a kind of a, a point forward who can shoot pull-ups and, and do a lot of different things. But I think they're both really good prospects and very much um, very much kind of the, the two clear best prospects in this class. Uh, I know people like Jalen Suggs, um, but I just think those two are, are very much in kind of different classes than, than Suggs or anyone else in this um in this year's uh, draft cycle. I agree with that. Okay. I mean, I know the evolution of the big man is starting to fade, and we saw that how everyone's bashing the Suns and the Kings for passing on Luka and taking DeAndre Aiden and Marvin Bagley over them. Um, Big man, clearly wings are 
they'll go now in today's NBA. Everyone wants wings, and Cade could play the wing while handling the ball. And he reminds me a lot of Luka Doncic, actually. I don't know how accurate that comp is. But um, just with his size and his ability to pass the ball and handle the ball. But Mobley, the, his ability to switch and... He he does what a lot of big men what you yeah. want mm-hmm. a big man to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, he that's checks so many of those boxes. Um, I totally get that. Um, I I just think some of it is an is an archetype. Um, is it, is it some of it's an archetype thing? Like whenever I can, if, if it's if it's fifty fifty split, I'm always going to take the guy who I think can run offense before kind of a a complimentary play on that end. Um, but I just buy Cade's scoring upside more. I buy his playmaking upside. Um, I think Mobley will certainly be a better defender, as you mentioned. He can. He can guard a ton of positions. He affects so many shots with his length and mobility and, and instincts and whatnot. Um, just he's like, I, while I talk to kid, I don't want to make it sound like Mobley is, you know, like I think he's he's worse. I don't I don't know if I necessarily put them in the same tier, but the fact that I would consider it is a testament to Mobley because Cade is a phenomenal phenomenal prospect. Um, but I just think Cade's shot making, his shooting, his playmaking, um, the fact that he can kind of guard one and a half through four and a half. I mean, he's a good help setter and protector. He knows how to play the passing lanes. He's so well positioned off the ball defensively. Um, I just think there's too many things he does really well and plays, you know, the most important kind of archetype, and you know, that, that you can find. Um, just gives him um, a, a big enough edge for me. But but I but I think I would certainly be willing to hear a case for Mobley in the same tier. I'm not quite there, um, but I think you know, the, as I mentioned, those two are definitely kind of in a league of their own. Um, but but I just value Kate a lot more in terms of the position he plays and maybe what he offers overall. But again, Mobley is quite, quite good. Yeah, they're definitely the 1A and 1B of this draft class. And if I'm the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Detroit Pistons, yeah. I'm thrilled if I, I think get you Especially one with the Pistons, so, I'm thrilled if I get either, either one of them because I know they can help uh, Killian Hayes a lot. I know obviously both of them would become superior prospects to Killian Hayes, or they already are, but... Um, either one's going to help a ton, you know, lighten, lighten the burden for a guy like Hayes, who um, looked to have kind of a lot, maybe too much on his plate through the first seven games he played this year. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, whoever gets the, the first and second pick um, in, in this year's draft is going to be uh, quite happy with um, whoever they end up getting. Unless it goes to like Minnesota, if you're Mo- Minnesota number two, I would two, take Mobley for sure. I mean, um, I think do you he just makes take Evan- to Cal, honestly, a guy who can help, who can kind of be your primary rim protector, who can switch out in the perimeter too. Um, yeah, I guess Minnesota. Yeah, and, and you would also. Get I guess Minnesota does need that defense because Cat can play on. You know, can play outside, and Mobley's such a good finisher inside, such a good passer. Um, I think it would be. An, it would be. I think it would be kind of a a distinct and different kind of fit than you normally see with you know two, quote unquote fr- franchise centerpieces. But um, I think it'd be really fun and interesting for sure. But. Um, yeah, Minnesota is one of those teams where like they're in such a weird spot because they've had this top three protected pick. But if they get a top two, um, they're kind of back in business. But if they don't get a top three pick this year, then they're in a really, really tough spot. So um, Minnesota is kind of a fascinating thing with this this top three protected pick kind of hanging in the balance and, and what a top two prospect in this class could really do to maybe change the tra- trajectory of a, a kind of stagnant or declining franchise at the moment. Yeah, and right now, if the um if the draft lottery was tomorrow, I think they'd have the second yeah. most lottery balls behind um Detroit. So, who do you think from the twenty nineteen draft? Obviously, they're only twenty twenty two games into their careers. 
Who would you say you were most correct about and who um, you were most wrong about? Well, we'll start with who I was most wrong about was definitely Tyrese Halliburton. Um, I think I had him mid-lot, late lottery. Um, kind of, I think I had him like my 13 to 20 range. Um, just worried a lot about kind of his on-ball um, ability on offense. And I clearly underestimated just his general understanding for the game and his IQ and his feel um, and kind of his shooting upside there and how quickly he's improved overall across the last couple of years. Um, so definitely was, was incorrect on him for sure. Um, seems like an easy one, but Lamelo, uh, I had Lamelo as my clear best prospect in this class. I know I had him in the same tier as a few other guys, but I always, you know, for the last, I don't know, eight months of the draft cycle, I viewed him as the best kind of class, um, by kind of a wide margin. Um, so he's a guy that I, I think I, I feel good about. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's like, I mean, it's tough to really say, I think Patrick Williams is a guy that I'm pretty confident in too. Maybe I have had him a little too low, but I really liked his ball skills um, this year. And I think even though at times he's really struggled to navigate screens, he looks at like a better kind of perimeter defender than I thought he could be or that he was in, in college. Um, Devin Vassell is a good two. Um, I might've been too, a little too high on Poku. I don't know. It was too early for me with Poku. I thought he was a, he obviously developmental project, but I had him in my first year as my second guy. Um, maybe a little too rich there, but, but we'll see. Um, as you mentioned, it, it's just early, but um I think, you know, maybe lower down the guys that I was maybe too high on or too too low on, excuse me, would be guys like Quickly and Pritchard. I think I had Quickly in my, my late second round. I didn't have Pritchard in my top 45 or whatever it was. Um, and so just a couple of guys that, you know, have shown to be able to be kind of secondary or tertiary ball handlers through the early portion of the year that I, I seem to underrate. Yeah, I feel like every single draft guy – if I would ask them this question, every single one would say they will be, and this is my answer, the most wrong, the guy they're most wrong about would be Emmanuel Quickly. Because I don't think anyone saw this coming. I think mm-hmm. everyone had him about a mid to late seconds. <laughs> Knicks took him in the first, and everyone said, oh, it's the Knicks. Like, of course, they, they trade up to mess up their pick. But yeah, he's really, yeah. Know, he, they might have found the point played, with him. Um, he's good. What I know he played more on the ball, kind of an AAU in pre college. and. I know people who liked him talked about that more, and that's just another point to make sure you watch guys in different settings. Um, I didn't watch any of quickly before, uh, you know, Kentucky, and so I, I my evaluation, you know, seemed to have suffered a little bit, and so um, definitely looks a lot more comfortable with the ball in his hands than I, I thought he could be. But yeah, he's been awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know maybe lower, you know, guys like Xavier Tillman, Desmond Bain. I feel like everyone liked, and they've been really awesome, as you mentioned earlier in an earlier segment. So um, yeah, it's it's. It, Drafts are so tough because it takes so long to really know, um, you know, what you got right, what you got wrong. Um, and that makes it tough because it's, you know, you're going to always try and make kind of shift your evaluation and your scouting evaluation, but um, you really got to be patient to know, you know, when exactly you should, you know, say, okay, I got that guy right or I got that guy wrong. But, uh, but yeah, I generally feel pretty solid about this draft um, at this point. Um, definitely some things I got wrong, but I think you can, if you ever latch on to every miss you get or every miss or every, every correct uh, you know, prediction, um, you're not really doing anything. You're not. You're not doing yourself enough credit, or giving yourself, or holding yourself accountable enough. So, um, but generally speaking, I feel pretty encouraged about how I, you know, evaluated this draft. Um, even if I have some some notable misses, some notable hits, and it's just. But I do feel like I, I put a lot of work in, and I, I feel comfortable about the the the, uh, the early early returns. I should say. Yeah, and as you were saying about Poku, I'm not writing him off yet. I think he's going to be phenomenal. So I think him playing in the G League bubble will really help his development where he could, 
you know, mm-hmm. make more mistakes than he was able to at the NBA level. And then in regard to guys I was most right about, I just want to say I love the Memphis Grizzlies draft. I had Desmond Bain, Xavier Tillman, mm-hmm. and Killian Tilly. I had all three of them as first-round grades. They were able to, they were able to snag all three yeah, of them when I had, they went I had all to the draft with no first-round we, we get to see Tilly play. I think he's been dealing so, with a, a hamstring injury, unfortunately another injury for him. But, but yeah, Bain and, Bain and Tillman look, look very much like great, great value picks by, the, by that franchise. Okay, so I'm going to conclude the podcast now. Um, give me, before you go, I want two predictions from you. I want your Super Bowl prediction for tonight, because right. it's Super Bowl Sunday, uh, Super Bowl, I'm and go I want Chiefs. your Final Four prediction. Gonna, I, think, I think they've been the best team in football all year. They have the best player in Patrick Mahomes. Um, so I will go with them. I think it'll be close, though. Um, we'll say 31-23 Chiefs, just to give you a final score prediction there, too. Um, final Four, that's a, that's a great question, because um, I think – I think two teams are pretty easy. Uh, Gonzaga and Baylor have been the two best teams all year. The two, the two undefeated teams. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to go Alabama as my, as my uh, one team. Um, I like, I like the pace they play with. I like um, okay. the fact that they're kind of winning with defense this year under Nate Oates. Um, and then this is tough. You're really, I know you, you at, it was on the outline. I should have been, I should have been a little more uh, thorough there, but um I oh, give me Virginia. I'll go Virginia. They've been playing a lot better as of late. Um, Steamrolling some really good teams. There's some some good teams in the ACC. Um, so I'll go Gonzaga, Baylor, Alabama, and Virginia as my final four this year. Um, with my I think my fifth team is Houston. I don't know. If, I know you, there's no room for five teams okay. in a four team uh, round, but I'll go Houston as the the fifth team if I have to if I get one uh, one mulligan. Okay, and I agree with Gonzaga and Baylor. I think everyone in the country basically would agree with that. Um, and then I would go Villanova. I know they just lost the other day, but I have confidence in Jay Rudd. I think he's the best coach in college basketball. I I think Jeremiah Robinson Earl is better than he's been playing, and I love Colin Gillespie. And my fourth team, I'm actually going to go Iowa. Um I Luca Gauls is obviously the best player in college basketball right now, but mm-hmm. I like how they surround him with all the shooting that they have. So I think they could make a deep run just because of that. And I would say my <laughs> mulligan would be, since apparently we're doing mulligans now, right. um, I would go Illinois. Yeah, I mean, with picking two Big Ten teams is never bad. That Big Ten once again is a is a grind to win games out of, and so. Uh, I think picking two teams as a battle test like that is never a never a bad idea for sure. I think that could certainly happen. Um, yeah, it should be fun. Though. I, I I look forward to seeing who. I guess as I said, I think it's going to be Baylor and Gonzaga, but I look forward to seeing who who can join um, them you know, in, the, in the final four. It should be really interesting to watch unfold in a couple of months. It's an interesting year in college basketball. I read a stat yesterday that said it's going to be the first time since or Monday will be the first time since 1961 that Kansas, Duke, UNC, and Kentucky all won ranked. Yeah, and that just, doesn't even just be account for Michigan day, State, right? who's also not going to be ranked. So, yeah. it's just... I'm so, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, no, sorry, they didn't, they didn't beat Iowa. I but, it was a close game. I couldn't remember who won. But, but yes, but okay. still, still game t- came down to the wire with Iowa, so...
Yeah, well, that concludes this episode um, of the, the easiest way to find podcast, my Jackson, work uh, is, find is just check my Twitter profile at JackFrank underscore JJF. Everywhere I write for and talk about the NBA and NBA draft are linked in my bio there. Um, there's a link to my Patreon, too. There's a link to all the sites I write for. So um, easiest way is just check that bio and, uh, and check out all my work there. Okay, and Jackson is looking for part-time and full-time writing work, so hopefully this hope this helps get your name out there a little bit more. I am a big fan of your work personally. I am subscribed to your Patreon, so um, yeah, definitely follow Jackson. He works hard and his content's good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the, of the NBA Go Podcast, and I will talk to you.